Well, welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief for Railway Age. My guests are three people well-known to, uh, to our audience, our readers, and to the industry. We have our financial editor, David Nehas, who is president of Railroad Financial Corporation, our Wall Street editor, Jason Seidel, who is Managing Director at Cowan & Company, and Matt Elcott, Transportation and Equipment Analyst at Cowan & Company. Welcome, gentlemen. We, it's a couple of days to go before Christmas. What are we looking for Santa to bring <laughs> next year in terms of, uh, uh, of rail car deliveries uh, and, and builds? Let's, uh, let's talk about uh, that first. Uh, Matt, you just had a, uh, a forecast uh, that goes out over the next uh, two or three years. What are, what are we looking at? Uh, sure, Bill. Thank you. And I think uh, everyone on this panel would like Santa to bring uh, some more freight. Uh, I think we can we can all agree on that. Uh, but yes, so we updated our uh, industry supply demand model for the rail car industry this morning. Um, we are expecting both uh, rail car orders and deliveries to increase it over the next two years. Uh, Percentage-wise, the biggest the biggest increase will be in orders, but that's because we're starting off with a very low uh, base this year of about uh, 20,000 uh, orders that we're forecasting for this year. Uh, that's going up to 36,000 orders according to our forecast, and going up to 40,000 orders in 2022. Uh, the production um, uh, forecast is a bit more modest. It still reflects increases from 32,000 this year to uh, 36,000 uh, next year, and uh, you know over 36,000 in 2022. And I'll talk briefly, Bill, if I may, about uh, some of the drivers behind the uh, this demand recovery. Um, there are probably uh, you know four different factors behind this recovery. Number one, where rail traffic swing back into growth mode, finally after you know probably about 18 months of declining, down 4% in 2019. Uh, we're expecting it, and Jason can talk this more. Of course, we're expecting it to be down 8% this year. Uh, so next year is the first year we'll see you know mid single digit rail traffic growth, for you know for the last couple of years. Um, that's number one driver. Uh, you're starting to see that, uh, you know, the emerging strength being reflected in the utilization numbers. So we've seen the utilization number uh, number for rail cars or the rail cars in storage number decline from 526,000 cars in July to 428,000 cars in December. Um, and then um, another reason for this is, uh, and this is just, Purely factual. We haven't seen uh, rail traffic growth while the entire Class One network is implementing PSR. So PSR in a growing rail traffic environment uh, for a full year has not really been tested, and I'm sure Jason has uh, views about this. So, and as far as this could lead to some service hiccups beyond what most what people expect, those service hiccups could actually drive. Uh, you know, rail equipment demand as well. And finally, there will be some replacement demand. The uh, 
grain car fleet is aging. Uh, box fleet homogenization has been a theme for forever. Uh, so eventually that will start to play out. Um, and there are some, uh, some other uh, spots we're seeing, obviously, intermodal equipment. Um, and we'll, have, we'll start seeing some more uh, regulatory-driven tank car uh, replacement over the next few years. So that's basically the uh, the forecast of the, the drivers behind it, Bill. Your uh, your forecast uh, also touched upon the uh, Class Eight truck market. That's those are the big semi trailers. Is there a correlation between the activity in the Class Eight truck market and and the, and the rail car space? Yeah, that's an important question. Uh, historically, there is a correlation, uh, uh, fairly solid positive correlation. We'll have to. Uh, go back and refresh the numbers to get the actual correlation co coefficient. But um, this, this recovery this, uh, this year uh, has been kind of anomalous because uh, you're seeing the class eight orders go up, but you're not seeing the rare orders go up. Uh, and lease, lease rates are improving, but you know, they're, the claims are getting less and they're bottoming. They're not really growing in anything, any fashion to kind of write home about. Uh, the reason for this anomalous uh, lack of correlation, you have to look at the utilization number. So there's, there's actually a correlation, but, but because we have such a high number of cars in storage, you're seeing the improvements first in the cars in storage, uh, mirroring that of the class eight uh, cycle. Once you get to a, a, a number of cars in storage that's low enough, where you have to start ordering cars, which I would imagine we're not too far off, uh, uh, too far uh, from, uh, then you'll see more of a correlation between probably class eight orders and rail car orders. But then there could be a dynamic on the truck side that could create a new anomaly next year because we actually think that the class eight uh, recover, the class eight uh, expansion uh, cycle has been pulled forward a bit by a number of of different factors so we're expecting higher uh trough this year um but a lower rebound next year than i think most people expect jason uh why don't we talk about the intermodal uh market specifically the recovery in the intermodal market and what to expect from uh from pricing so when when you're when you're looking at the rail recovery here uh, overall volumes over a cumulative uh, last four weeks we're we're up about four point three percent when you go x coal grain and intermodal we're up about one and a half percent which is which is good news so some of the whole commodities over the last month or so have just started to 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 come back a little bit in the rail space uh, Matt was correct. You know, we're looking at down about 8% on the whole year for class one carloads. X coal, granite, and modal, we're looking down double digits, but very low double digit percentages. Uh, the intermodal um, jump actually has been uh, almost unprecedented with many of the major ports breaking records, whether you look at the port of LA Long Beach, which is our largest container port, or port of Newark, New Jersey, which is our third largest container port. Uh, really breaking records. And I, I think what happened was there was a surge um, that started building uh, post the summer as we got into the traditional peak shipping, shipping season for, it, for uh, retailers to start restocking. Um, you know, some of the quickest way to do that is, is coming through the West Coast ports. That's why I think LA Long Beach was breaking records. But again, 
it was restocking, but I think then we started consuming a lot more too. Uh, you know, people for, for, uh, foregone their uh, vacation plans and have a lot more money that's, uh, that's on hand. And so they're spending it and they're ordering things and they're having things delivered to their houses. And so the supply chains right now are extremely tight. On top of that, the trucking market got very, very tight. In fact, if you look at the number in 3Q, uh, the rise in spot rate uh, and the pace of the increase was almost unprecedented uh, in the in the trucking industry. And, and that is really uh, uh, two things, right? So you have a lack of supply uh, from, you know, companies really just putting the brakes on any expansion plans. You had uh, drivers not being replaced because the driver schools were mostly effectively shut down during COVID. And even when they started coming back, they were at about 60, 70% of uh, previous capacity. Um, and then throw on top of that, the drug and alcohol database. So then you had a shortness of supply in the trucking market and people are looking just to deliver goods. And that's why I think you've seen the intermodal market really, really jump. And But that has strained the network as we've all seen in many, many locations with railroads throwing on massive surcharges to try to control equipment and uh, even shutting down gates at, at multiple locations to just try to manage a lot of the space constraints that they have in the network. Do you find the railroads responding well to this shift in how people, how consumers purchase uh, or acquire uh, goods, uh, shifting from going shopping, from going to big box stores or mom and pop stores, or what have you, to ordering things online, which of course requires more packaging, more more transit, more transportation. How, 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 do, how do you perceive the railroads as responding to, the, to this change? Well, they're responding. Uh, the railroads never pivot quickly um, over their history, right? We all know that. They're the, they're the uh, 900-pound gorillas, so they're not exactly as, as nimble as their counterparts. Um, but, but they are pivoting. Um, you know, you're starting to see more of an emphasis on uh, the intermodal product being a more consistent service base. And we're starting, and I emphasize, emphasize the word starting, starting to see some uh, real-time tracking programs that the railroads are going to have to try to uh, give their, their customers a look at, you know, the, the shipments from origin to destination. Just telling you, telling a shipper, hey, we can track it while it's on our line is great, but the shipper doesn't really care. Uh, you know, we, we hosted a conference call when there was a CEO of one of the short-line railroads that basically said, hey, listen, if I can track my pizza from Domino's oven to my doorstep, we should be able to tell you where our rail car is. And, and I think that's the uh, overwhelming thought of a lot of the railroad shippers that are out there. And I think that's something that's going to be needed as we go into the future and look to get more competitive with a lot of the trucking counterparts. And, and we're again, we're starting to see the railroads do more of it. Norfolk Southern announced the big program that's out there, CSX and more trip plan compliance. So I, I think that's going to be extremely important as the railroads look to grow their piece of the intermodal market share. 2019 was the first reduction in intermodal loadings since the Great Recession. And the Great Recession was sort of like a, a rubber band. We went down 14% year, came back up 14% the next year. And then this year we started out with a little bit of a reduction. And now obviously we've moved back to almost parity year over year with 2019, uh, which I think is beyond everybody's expectation. Are we anticipating growth into 2021 as a result of, say, for example, uh, the tariffs being uh, removed as the presidential administration changed, I think is something that we would all expect to happen in some form or another, or just the 
continuing ongoing presence of consumable goods as the pandemic continues on into next year as people wanting more packaged goods or just catching up on inventory. Is that the expectation headed into 2020 that we will exceed, uh, 2021 rather, that we will exceed 2020's loadings? At this so point? I, I think when you look at it, you're gonna get probably a stronger uh, volume growth in the first half of the year uh, versus the second half of the year. And really probably 4Q is gonna be tough comps for these guys. But everyone we talk to um, on the on the rail side has uh, and, and the port side has said, listen, we see strength throughout Lunar New Year. Beyond that, they don't have any sort of uh, prognostications. A lot of the trucking companies are saying strength through at least the second quarter. Um, although we all know that trucking companies sometimes can't predict next week, let alone uh, uh, you know quarters out. Um, That's not much better. Yeah, well, <laughs> but no, but I think ports are pretty good at, at projecting volumes. They know the loadings that are coming in. So to mm -hmm. me, that's one of the reasons why we, we host these big port calls. We're gonna have another one, say in February here. Um, but honestly, when you, when you look at this, I think you're gonna see continued growth. Uh, the trucking market is still tight. I, I don't think there's a way for them to expand capacity. And it's really just a driver issue. Now, you know, almost sounds like a broken record throughout my career saying that, which is 30 years in the trucking industry, by the way, now. Um, but this is the worst I've seen it. You know, I was talking to a CEO of a private uh, trucker who's in the upper Midwest. They have 1,400 trucks. They've been around since the 1930s. Their driver pay is in the top quartile. And they just put forward their largest driver pay increase in their company history. They have not been able to grow their driver base one driver. They're flat by by mm. jack pay up. So there, there, to me, there's just no way to significantly expand right now uh, that driver base to, to grow uh, the, the fleet. Like you saw 18, right? When, when everything got really great in 18 in the trucking market, you know, Warner and Knight and, and Schneider, those guys didn't grow massively. They grew a little bit. The guys who grew massively were forward in the midsize carriers. Well, now you can't, you can't find drivers that are out there, whether whether there's the lack of the backfill from the, uh, uh, the driver uh, uh, recruiting and marketplace, whether there's the drivers that are getting stuck in the drug and alcohol database that started at the beginning of this year, which is gonna continue going forward, or whether people are just saying, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm sort of done with this. You know, COVID has is, is got me out on the road, I'm, I'm too old or I have some pre-existing conditions. It's, it's become extremely difficult right now to attract uh, good drivers that are out there. And there's other things, by the way, that could happen that could also restrict it. Like, you know, there's been long talked about increases in minimum insurance rates for truck drivers. That'll drive a lot of smaller carriers out of the market if that would take place. So look, I, you know, I, I think there's things that can help intermodal out. Um, you know, if there's ever a rebound in diesel prices, that'll help out as well. Because, you know, when you saw the weakness as we were in 19, you know, uh, low cheap diesel prices didn't help us either. Um, so there's a lot of things that are happening. I'm very confident that we're going to see pretty good growth in the first half of the year. Uh, I think that that growth is going to wane as we get in the second half of the year, but it's more going to be a conversation. Are you hearing anything from the ports about the container imbalance uh, having an impact on, on uh, inbound freight? Uh, there's there's a there's massive equipment shortages. A lot of the, um, the lines are trying to keep their equipment around major ports. So it's it, we're really hearing issues at secondary ports or inland facilities, just not having the equipment. And we're even hearing about it in, in, in foreign locations as well. So it's not just the U.S. that's having some of these supply chain issues.
So I want to say one thing, Bill, you could edit this out if you'd like, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm slowly trying to turn Bill into a, uh, a fan of uh, Shakespeare's King Lear. So, uh, <laughs> Sir David so of Mayhouse. Another, uh, <laughs> another good quote for you. Whoever can say that they have seen the worst has not yet seen it. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, listen, I, I, I think we all I like that. Dumb fire of a year behind us. <laughs> For sure. We actually feel like it occurs after somebody's eyes poked out. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I want, I wanted to, uh, David, to ask you, uh, about, uh, your, uh, quote here, uh, in, in your, in your financial edge column for our December outlook issue, uh, where, uh, and the, title uh the headline is the pathway to normalcy remains uncertainly specifically you said the impending change in the white house signals a change in foreign trade and policy usmca will and should survive uh, the only uh uncertain piece of the puzzle is what is going to happen as far as control in the senate you know is uh, that depends upon the uh, uh the election just a few days sure. from now so what uh what are what are you what's your view what are you seeing out there as far as um how how the the political the the, ch the change in politics is going is going to affect the uh, so so as we just saw or as we just talked about bill the the, the possibility or the expectation the the tariff related issues both in europe and in asia are going to be mollified right the u.s government is going to adopt a more congenial attitude to our foreign trade partners move back more towards a globalized point of view rather than uh, a centralized point of view, you would expect that that will uh, improve global trade, right? And uh, on, a, on an overall basis. And the issue I think really that we're gonna have to, to figure out, and, and I've spent some time thinking about this and talking about it with others, is that you know, trade flows adapt to the, to the moment they don't necessarily move, and I know Jason will have a point of view on this as well, they don't necessarily move of their own volition. So if trade routes and, and trade balances have been impacted by the tariffs, the need to move them back to the pre-tariff era or into the, uh, into the momentum or into the patterns that they had pre-tariff or uh, NAFTA before USMCA is unnecessary because people have adapted their supply chains to the current environment and the current situation. So while the economics may improve, you're not necessarily going to see traffic flows adjust to the change in tariffs the way they had to adjust when the tariffs were put in place. So that's a fairly interesting thing to watch in terms of what the government looks to do. And then furthermore, uh, if the Senate doesn't swing uh, uh, Democrat and it is held up, the prospects of having an infrastructure bill, which we're all in some way looking forward to and which would clearly be a benefit to rail, remain very dim, right? I think if the Senate does not swing, you're gonna have a frozen legislature. And there's obviously some very strong battle lines formed along party lines, and we're all familiar with that. So it's un, uh, I think it would be unreasonable to expect a large, well-thought-out bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill to come along in the new administration. And so there's gonna be some handicapping, but the tariffs themselves were executive order-driven and I guess is those will be removed right out of the gate. And that should have some improvement for us, for sure, because there has certainly been some impact of tariff-related decreases, especially going back into 2019 and 2018. But it's not going to, I don't believe, it's going to signal a massive period of growth. 
but it will help certainly help right less less restriction will certainly be a help in that regard the the republican platform will feel quite emboldened by the fact that they picked up seats in the house and so if the senate doesn't flip i think that the the party platform of the republican party feels that it has a strong toehold and is not going to feel much necessity to compromise uh, you know uh, lock jawing the government or 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 stifling the government to prevent activity I would believe the way that they have traditionally thought about it or that politicians generally think about things, uh, atrophy and inactivity tends to favor the party that's looking to get the one up the next time around. So the idea that they're gonna compromise to enhance a Biden presidency seems rather difficult to process for me. Fair enough, J- uh, Jason, your, your thoughts? Oh yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna start off by saying I'm a raging independent and can't stand both sides. Well, we'll get that out of the way first. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, look, I, I think that, you know, will it be less contentious than under the Trump presidency? Yes, I, I believe it will be less contentious, but I don't think I'm going on a limb by saying that. Um, you know, will we get stuff done? Uh, I, I mean, you know, we, we barely got a stimulus uh, aid package here passed and then, you know, we all know that no one really read it before we're uh, voting on it. So that's even scarier in my eyes. Um, David's right. Uh, you know, the, the Republicans right now are looking at the midterm election. Uh, and there is even talk uh, from at least what I've seen, and I don't want to get too political here, but about them trying to, to, to flip the House because they did so well in the last time around. So I, I think it's all going to depend on what happens uh, down in Georgia. And, and we'll see. I, I have no uh, prognostications on that. I'm not a political analyst, but I do want to get back to some of the uh, commentary that David uh, sort of talking about on fre- uh, freight flows, because I think what's really interesting is I think there is there's something that's being masked right now, right? And that's sort of that long-term shift of supply chains and, and that impact as it went away from Northern Asia and China to Southeast Asia and maybe Mexico. And, and the reason why it's masked is because people just needed to refill their inventories. And you walk around in stores right now, if you get out, a lot of shelves really aren't full. Um, so it's, this is still ongoing. This is just not done. And the quickest point of entry, obviously, for us is, is through the West Coast. But I think as we go beyond that, you know, people have actually changed their supply chain, whether it was because they figured out we don't want to be 90% China anymore or it was due to the tariffs. It really doesn't matter. Because once you go through the effort of reconfiguring your supply chain, just because Biden relaxes some tariffs, it's not going to matter. You're not going to switch back. It's already done. You know, we had a we had a great conference call that was done by one of our fellow analysts, John Blackledge of Callen, and, and he had on. Uh, this was like a an online um, uh, seller of like home goods. He would sell through Amazon or Wayfair stuff like that, and he was saying five years ago, ninety two percent of his stuff came from China. He said this year it's down to 86%. And he said he believes over the next five years, he's going to get it down to in the 60% range. And and that really is saying something in terms of a shift, because when you start shifting those patterns, you're now looking for some freight going through the Suez, right? And that's going to be port of entry more along the East Coast port or the Gulf Coast for, uh, for the U.S. And that's going to really change a lot of things. So I think to me, that's something to keep your eye on because the supply chain shift has happened and it's not a light switch. It takes months to reorganize the supply chain. Do you guys feel that uh, the momentum behind nearshoring will be mollified at all as the tariffs are relaxed, right? I mean, the nearshoring 
was clearly an impact of pandemic related activity, but it was also part of the, you know, it's just becoming too complex, right? And I've spent a lot of time thinking about KCS and the KCS franchise. And, and I know you guys spend a lot of time, uh, both for and then otherwise uh, opining on that as well. So what do you think about the, the potential for increasing in nearshoring activity? I, I think we've seen that occur already. Uh, and I think also with the now the USMCA in place, and I think you stated you think it's going to hold speed. Um, you know, once you have a playbook for a company to make, you know, a billion dollar investment, it's a lot easier than when you have uncertainty, right? No one's going to make investments in the middle of uncertainty. Um, so I think that's going to happen. And, and I, I think what the last, let's call it, three and a half years has shown a lot of people is, is that you don't want to be weighted towards one country, right? You want to you wanna expand your supply chain because there, there, there's just weakness in that. Whether, whether there's another, you know, presidency eight years down the road that might do something similar, you just don't know. You can't plan for that. So you have to insulate your supply chain. I mean, I think that's really the answer for a lot of these large companies is insulate that supply chain. I mean, we saw it with Fukushima, right, with auto paint, where you can get certain colors because only certain colors are manufactured in that one area. People saw the weakness in their supply chain and, and made changes after that. And I think people are making changes after what's happened with this sort of tariff war, if you will, with, with China and some other countries. What um, changes uh, or benefits, if any, have uh, have been realized from the the shift from NAFTA to USMCA, which there really isn't all that much of a difference between the two. Now, USMCA is really pretty much NAFTA 2.0, as far as I see right. it. I think, well, Bill, I mean, we, we don't have enough time under the new USMCA as being approved, really, to, to, to grade it just yet. I think, ask me next year, and I think we'll have a better sense of what's going to happen, because not only has it only been, you know, a couple of months um, since it's been implemented, but now you have an entire, you know, new administration coming in on top of it. So it's going to be very hard to sort of tell you what the difference between, you know, the, the NAFTA uh, and then, as you pointed out, the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0 is. I wanted to um, touch again on, on technology. Uh, Jason, you had given the uh, analogy before about, you know, you, you order a pizza and you can track it from when you order it to when it's delivered. How well do you see the, the railroads um, responding now that they're done with uh, PTC as the, 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 the basic platform, which is just a safety overlay, okay? But they have all this bandwidth. They have this huge investment and moving to PTC 2.0. Do you see them really moving aggressively forward on taking that that? huge investment, which was between 15 and $20 billion, and leveraging it to give all this real-time information that, that customers are demanding, really. I've called PTC sort of a gateway towards more rail automation. Um, but remember, the PTC investment, as you pointed out, the $15 billion was done with a gun to their head. If, if everyone recalls in the beginning, they were kicking and screaming about the amount of money that they've had to invest in the network. And now looking back, I think we can all agree that it was something that's going to be much needed because like it or not, you know, automation is coming in the truck world. It's not going to come anytime soon, but it's coming in the next couple of years. And I think rail needs to do everything that they can to be more uh, technologically advanced. Uh, we don't want the trucks coming in and eating their lunch. So they will, 
they will absolutely make the investment at what pace I'm uncertain. Again, uh, you know, this isn't the under the head uh, investment that they had with PTC. Uh, this is them trying to plan it out. Uh, we're starting to see them talk about it a little bit more. Um, I had a discussion with one of the class ones who basically said, listen, listen, just because we might not talk about it in public doesn't mean we're not talking about it behind closed doors. The railroads must improve their service quality. They must improve visibility for their, uh, their customers. And I think they, they must improve the throughput through the network through whatever automation they can do. And I'm even talking about even automating some of their uh, terminal locations as opposed to, you know, uh, just a driverless train, if you will. I think that'll work in some locations, but not all. And I'm not sure what the FRA is gonna have to say about that. Yeah, it's, it, it comes down to the, uh, the three word phrase, supply chain visibility. That's something that has to be business as usual eventually. But we're all spoiled. The, consumer, the consumers are spoiled now, right? And so, I mean, that's, everyone's got expectations and my kids, I mean, I order, I order something on Amazon for them. They're asking me to, you know, dad, let me see the tracking. When's it getting here? I mean, they're, 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 they're tracking the packages of what they put on Amazon. My, you know, my daughter's eight. Matt, a, a question for you on the equipment side on, on technology, specifically with uh, locomotives. Um, in the past few days, uh, we, we've seen uh, hydrogen fuel cells, uh, all of a sudden, you know, come to the forefront. Uh, there, there's this initiative in, in Canada to, uh, to utilize um, uh, hydrogen and, and that which may or may not be sourced from, you know, a different way of, uh, of, of utilizing all that natural gas that's, uh, that, that's, that's up in the Alberta provinces. Canadian Pacific now has a, announced a, um, a pilot project for hydrogen fuel cell locomotives. Companies like uh, Cummins, for example, are uh, and Chard Industries, which uh, which which provides uh, uh, liquefaction uh, and storage uh, uh, gear for 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 LNG and CNG. They're making major investments in hydrogen. What 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 do you see on for the rail equipment? Climate change, the fight against climate change, used to be something nice to have in the U.S. for companies to talk about. Um, it's been an actual investment thesis in, in many other parts around the world, uh, specifically in Europe. And over the last, I want to say, uh, particularly 12 months to two years, it's becoming more of an actual investment uh, thesis in the U.S. as well. So expect energy transition uh, to become um, an increasingly, uh, you know, dominant subject going forward. And uh, the transportation sector is one of the biggest contributors uh, of emissions. So if you want to reduce emissions globally, you have to target the transportation sector. On the rail side, you're right, Cummins is delivering over the next few years about 100 uh, fuel cell uh, systems, hydrogen fuel cell systems to Alston. Um, and on, on the freight side, on the freight locomotive side, there's been less progress, slower progress. I think the emphasis has been on uh, other uh, new technologies, uh, maybe hybrid battery electric uh, diesel locomotives, uh, natural gas. But I think you're gonna see hydrogen uh, being examined more and more, even by the freight railroads, 
And this is not something that I have a strong opinion about, but I know that the freight railroads own their, uh, you know, tracks and, and, and the real estate that it's on in, in, in the U.S., which is not, which is dissimilar to many parts uh, of the world outside the U.S. Um, so I wonder if that could make it, um, you know, facilitate the implementation of a hydrogen infrastructure or any new technology infrastructure for that matter for the railroads. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree generally with what Jason said about the, you know, the railroads having to embrace technology more and more going forward, both on the automation front, and there's a lot of progress on that. I mean, uh, WebTech's uh, highest, highest growth segment uh, over the next couple of years, according to my estimates, is the digital uh, segment, which includes auto automation. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, we'll see. We'll see the railroad experiment with hydrogen, uh, hybrid battery, electric, and and other new technologies. So that's going to be an uh, increasingly dominant theme. Do you see it making more progress than, let's say, LNG? You know, uh, just a few years ago, there were uh, there was a lot of talk about LNG. There was uh, uh, the big railroads, BNSF, uh, Union mm -hmm. Pacific, uh, CNCSX. Uh, uh, they were all testing yeah. LNG. The, the only, the only uh, large-scale implementation we saw was on the Florida East Coast, and mainly because they have the infrastructure there. Uh, and, and that's a captive system, pretty much. But uh, LNG was, uh, it was pretty big for some time, uh, but then it sort of died down. Uh, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you see, you see hydrogen no, fuel cell I, or hybrid I, or battery? doing you know maybe making a little more progress i think hydrogen um is going to be a bit slower uh, to uh grow or get uh, gain traction on the freight side it's going to be more of a transit uh solution uh you know for the foreseeable future there will be experimentations with hydrogen on the freight side but i think uh, it's going to be slower to take off. Hydrogen is going to be uh, a higher growth uh, technology in truck, uh, specifically, you know, light, medium uh, truck, even heavy duty truck as well. Uh, I don't foresee, uh, you know, uh, the earth shattering impact from hydrogen on freight rail uh, for the foreseeable future. It's going to be more, you know, the, like the zero to zero, what WebTech is experimenting with, and hybrid battery electric systems, which kind of exist uh, already in some railroads. And I think the railroads are, uh, you know, open to uh, uh, developing that technology more. David, I wanted to ask you about uh, CNG, which which you've been kind of, kind of close to for the, the past few years. Uh, where do you see that going? So, so the CNG presents Bill the, the most cost-effective long-term alternative, and, and a lot of that has to do with the cost of cooling uh, vis-a-vis uh, LNG, right? So you're correct to say that the railroads spent a fair amount of time investigating LNG as a solution. What they found is that the, the regulatory environmental cost prohibitions associated with it, unless, like you noted, there's a you have a, an LNG facility on your lines like they do at FEC, makes it very difficult to implement the infrastructure. LNG is a volatile commodity. 
it needs uh, certain temperatures, it needs a lot of maintenance, it's, uh, it's expensive to put in place to capture the economic value of the reduction in natural gas versus uh, diesel. NG, on the other hand, is a lot more shelf stable. It could be put in place more cost effectively, and the technology is a lot more turnkey at the end of the day. So I would expect that you'll see, as we start to open up from the pandemic shutdown, more openness towards the embracing of CNG. CNG also offers a pathway to emissions-free uh, fueling. And, and on a long-term basis, that's really where I think you have to head. So you know, to Matt's point, I, I think that CP's initiative for the fuel cell is, is very important, right? The railroads, whether on the ESG side or on the technology side, need to move more into a, a modern bias, right? And so uh, you know, we can spend a lot of time, we can do an old another podcast on why we've been resistant to change. And it's just part of it being one of the things Jason said earlier, right? We're nine, the, the railroads are 900 pound gorillas and, and they're not King Kong the Empire State Building. They pivot a lot more slowly. And, and generally, as you noted with PTC, a lot of times they don't pivot unless they're forced to. One thing I think you might see is going to be an aspect of the Biden administration is a stronger pivoting back towards a more heavy-handed environmental policy. And the railroads are going to need to, to start comp comprehending what that might mean for them, right? They've been resisting, say, for example, tier four locomotives. We all, we could spend a, you know, a fair amount of time talking about the dearth of tier four locomotive orders and why that is, or tier four EPA compliant locomotive orders and why that is. But at some point, that pivot towards a more stringent uh, emissions compliance uh, route is going to happen and the railroads are going to have to pivot with it. I think that the more realistic and more likely approach is going to be through CNG just because the cost dynamics not only are more available for putting in place immediately, but it puts a lot of money in the railroad's pockets. And it's a lot easier to be nimble when you're saving a lot more money as a partner in nimbleness. Jason, your, uh, your closing thoughts. Well, listen, I think uh, all of us, like I said, want to get this year behind us. Um, it, it feels like this demand strength that we've seen over the last month and a half is going to continue well into next year. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, the late February, early March frame is going to be really key to seeing just how much legs this recovery has. Um, and, and that's what we're going to be focused on uh, at, at Cowan and our research efforts. Um, I think also the trucking industry, I, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of capacity brought back uh, quickly, uh, if you will, like we saw in 2018. So I think you're going to see a continued uh, a shortage there as long as the demand stays up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful longer term that the railroads are going to see the need uh, to improve their supply chain visibility and the automation of their network, because that's going to, that's going to be key uh, to them competing not over the next five years, but over the next 25 years, which is something that they really have to take a look at. Matt, on the equipment side, your uh, closing thoughts? Our current forecast build do not reflect a scenario in which we take a major step back on the vaccine front or on the virus front, meaning this new strain uh, in the UK does not prove resistant to the vaccine. So. So if we continue to make progress in the, you know, with the vaccine and, and, and things start to improve on that front, we feel pretty confident in our uh, forecast for growth in both 
rail car orders and deliveries over the next two years. Um, and then maybe, you know, at, after the uh, first half uh, strength as a continuation from this year in, in trade patterns, maybe uh, the increased economic activity can pick up and produce uh, continued uh, uh, freight growth. So, you know, there's a, there's a good deal of promise for next year. The, the virus remains a big wild card. Uh, the only other wild card I would note is the cash flow clunkers bill uh, uh, proposal. This may or may not happen. We've said that there's, uh, you know, no more than a 5% chance of it happening. Uh, so that could be meaningful for the industry if, if one is introduced uh, next year. David, I'll leave it to you to uh, finish up here with your uh, your 50,000 foot or 100,000 foot view. So I think, Bill, you know, heading into next year, what we'd all like to see is sustainable loadings growth, right? Sustainable loadings growth is what will drive additional equipment demand. And, and that's really what the industry needs. Uh, I am appreciative of, of the forecast for growth that, that Matt has put forth. You know, rental rates are still fairly low across most segments right now. And what we don't want to do, what I think all investors in rail equipment would like to see is a shrinking of the pool of available equipment so that rental rates can increase. Now, that's not necessarily what the shipper wants, right? But it's certainly what investors in equipment are going to be looking for. So that, that the, the tension there between a builder and a lessor and a shipper in terms of what it means for building new equipment and the cost for doing so and what the rental rates will do associated with it are all driven by loadings demand. So I think as an industry on an overall basis, everybody would like to see loadings increase. We've noted the pandemic is really going to be a big driver in exactly how that happens. Um, I think what we wouldn't want to see is a ramp up in continued building without an equivalent ramp up in loadings because that will continue to undermine the strength of the equipment market. So you know, a healthy industry doesn't necessarily always need an oversupply of equipment. So we're in a good trend line, right? Things are improving. We like their pace of improvement. We'd like to see that to continue. As we know, you know, once you get out past nine, the next 90 days, we're not really good at forecasting demand. So, you know, we're hopeful for uh, continued expansion and improvement. Gentlemen, uh, thank you. And as I like to close uh, all of these podcasts, uh, we, uh, especially at this time of the year, we wish you uh very happy holidays and a safe and prosperous and most important healthy new year. Thank you so much and have a safe day.